I wonder when you first realised that someone you know wasn't just a friend, but a best friend. That they did or said something which meant that you realised they had to go in a different category. Might have been a gift or simply being there in unexpected ways when you were finding things tough. You just realise maybe that they'd gone from an acquaintance to a friend or a, a friend to a best friend. That they had changed category in your life. Or I wonder when you first told or were told by your spouse that they loved you. Something that they were thrilled to say and hopefully that you were thrilled to hear. That they placed you in a different category. Something similar happened to me as a Christian. I went to a youth meeting at another church in York. The speaker uh, was involved in overseas mission in China. That's all I remember about him. But at the end of a stirring talk, he challenged those who were willing, willing to offer themselves a full-time Christian service, he challenged them to come forward. I had never responded to an altar call before. I didn't even know it was called an altar call, to be honest. But I felt a quickening in my being that the call was for me. So I went forward. They started praying for all who responded. We were encouraged to stand without stand with our hands out in front of us. And I started to, to rock backwards and forwards. And I thought, as you're probably thinking now, this is weird, Lord. So I opened my eyes and I stopped the swaying. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So there's a sense in which we can say, no, hang on a sec, Lord, to these kind of experiences. And I remember saying to the Lord, I do not understand this, but if this is you, Lord, knock me over. I had such an overwhelming experience of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that I came to my senses in a side aisle and don't actually remember either falling over or being moved. I tried to get up several times in the next hour or so, but I could not. I described it as though my sense of balance had been temporarily disengaged. The presence of the Holy Spirit was so powerfully and heavily upon me that I was left in no doubt at all that God had said yes. I had, I had gone forward willing to serve him on a full-time basis and he had said yes. It was on those stone slabs flawed by the power of God, that my journey to ministry began. Now, I'd never seen anyone prayed for like that. I'd never seen anyone respond like that. If you're old enough in the tooth to remember the Toronto blessing, this was about eight years, six to eight years before that. So I had no map for what had happened. I had no expectation for an experience like that. I wasn't hoping for what happened to me in any way at all. And I went running around York in the week afterwards trying to find someone who could explain it to me, someone who could put it in some kind of context. But God had made his sovereignty clear to me, overwhelmingly clear. And that meant I just had to put God into a different category. 
He'd gone from a nice, comforting belief system to the God of the universe. He'd burst out of the box that I'd put him in and revealed himself to be sovereign, revealed himself to be way bigger than I really wanted him to be in that moment. It was a profoundly teachable moment for me about feeling awe and one that completely altered the course of my life. I felt conscripted. Do you remember the Kitchener war poster, the famous one from World War I, where he's pointing at you and saying, I need you. That was how it felt. And that was settled. In a way, our reading tonight is also about the disciples realising that they had to put Jesus in a different category. That's my first teachable moment this evening. It's about awe, about having to put Jesus into a different category. Tonight's reading comes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has just dismissed the crowd. John 6.15 tells us, because they were getting ideas about forcing him to seize the kingship at the head of an army. So Jesus first sends the disciples away across the Sea of Galilee. And then he goes off into the wilderness because you can't force someone you can't find to march at the head of an army. He goes off into the wilderness to pray. And after he spent time praying high above the lakes, he looks out and sees the disciples. They are quite a way out in their boat, but they're finding it hard going. Why? Because both the wind and the waves were against them. They're a considerable distance out yet, but it's still hard work. The word translated buffeted normally means tortured. This is really hard work. But because they've known this water all their lives, they feel utterly confident. They're competent. They know what they're doing. Or at least they do until Jesus heads out to them, walking on the water. Mark 6.48 tells us that Jesus was about to pass them by and only stops and approaches them because they see him and they're terrified. They're utterly stirred up by a figure walking on the water. They scream out, it's a ghost. They cry out in fear. This is uncanny. This is terrifying. This is com completely beyond their expectations that they are transfixed and they are overwhelmed by what they're seeing. Jesus immediately reassures them. Take courage, it is I, verse 27. Don't be afraid. Now that answers some questions, yes. Leaves lots of others un unanswered. Yes, good to know who it is, but how is still a massive question here, and what hasn't gone away either? Fear and awe are really close to one another. In fact, it's usually the same word in Greek. It's just translated differently from context. So that fear hasn't gone away entirely. It's just turned into awe. I think they're trying to work out what category to place Jesus in now. I think we can hear that in some subtleties in the exchange between Jesus and Peter. Jesus says in verse 27, literally, take courage, I am, do not fear. I am is the Greek words ego eimi. It echoes the Greek translation of Yahweh, the name of God revealed to Moses when he encountered God at the burning bush. It's often translated, I am who I am. 
Now, that does often come over like an 80s empowerment pop song. I am who I am. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he is consciously echoing and claiming this language. He's not saying, or he's not just saying, take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. He's saying that they need not fear because God himself is with them. He's saying, take courage, I am. I am Yahweh present with you. That's why you have no reason to be afraid. And Peter picks this up in his reply. Without grasping this subtlety, Peter's response doesn't seem to make much sense. He's not asking Jesus to confirm it's really him. He's asking Jesus to confirm that he is, in some sense, Yahweh present with him. Jesus has said, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Peter replies, Lord, if you are. He doesn't say if it's you. He says, literally, Lord, if you are, tell me to come to you on the water. So we have, take courage, I am. I am Yahweh, don't be afraid. Peter replying, Lord, if you are, if you are Yahweh, tell me to come to you on the water. Because only God can make me able to do that. A second teachable moment is about empowerment, about empowerment. The answer to Peter's question is a single word, come, come. As proof that I am Yahweh, God really with you, as proof that your faith in me is warranted, as proof that your request is pleasing to me, come. I think Jesus is delighted that Peter is bold enough to step out in this way. And it's both figuratively and literally stepping out. If you've ever tried to get into a boat, you know it's not the most straightforward thing. Even if it's a boat tied up to a jetty, it's not the easiest thing to do as the boat so easily moves away from you as you step into it. But this boat is in a moving seascape with both wind and waves against it. Peter's not stepping from a raft onto still water, he has to step out over the side and down towards the water. At some point in that process, he has to commit to stop holding onto the boat and to reach for the surface. It's just boldly stated in verse 29, then Peter got down out of the boat, walking on the water and came towards Jesus. Got to imagine the look of wonder Wonder, and let's be honest, relief when his foot hits the water and doesn't sink. I wonder if it was like walking in a marshy area where there was bounce and give to the ground or whether it was as unyielding as concrete. But however it was, Peter has been empowered by Jesus's word and he walks on the water to Jesus spoke last week about the disciples not being able to picture Easter because they hadn't seen it yet. They just hadn't seen the, the risen Jesus and therefore it just, they just couldn't see it. But Peter can picture this because he sees Jesus standing on the water in front of him. Because Peter can picture it, he can therefore ask for it. 
And because Jesus has the authority to do this, he can call Peter to do it as well. He can call and enable and empower. There's this flowing together of calling, of empowerment, and of a vision all tied up in this one incident. Peter can see it. Peter has the faith to discern God's presence in Jesus. And Peter has the daring, the boldness to ask, to ask for what he can see in Jesus. And Jesus calls him to step into what he's seeking. Peter sees it in Jesus, therefore Peter asks. Peter asks, therefore Jesus calls. Peter steps out, therefore Jesus empowers. Was this planned? Did Jesus walk out into the water for this purpose? Mark 6.48 suggests that Jesus was walking by. He was going to surprise them at the other end. So there's a permissive character in God's empowerment here. That what's received is at least in some sense contingent on Peter asking. I think Jesus loves Peter's faith and loves his boldness in asking. And that's why he empowers Peter in this way. On a massively different scale, so it was for me at that youth meeting. I stepped out in response to God's call and God answered powerfully. Who took the initiative? Well, it's a bit of both. We just need to underscore this. We so often focus on the fact that Peter sinks. We can tend to overlook the reality that Peter walks on the water. The teachable moment is that Peter is empowered to do as Jesus himself was doing. So all empowerment and third courage. The third teachable moment is about courage. Peter is walking on the water. He is walking towards Jesus. He's presumably walking away from the boat. He isn't inching around the boat, clinging to the side. He's walking away from the boat and towards Jesus, who is still standing on the water waiting for him. Never forget that he does this that he has the faith to ask and the boldness actually to step out and down, to step out and down out of the boat. Never forget just how often courage is mixed up in faith. Never forget just how often faith is opposed to fear as much as it is to doubt. Peter shows the most extraordinary courage here and the most extraordinary faith in Jesus. He has the courage to back up his faith. He has the courage to step into what his faith tells him is possible. He is going against every single instinct he has learned from decades fishing this water. It's going against everything that every hour on this water has taught him, and yet, and yet he steps out and down. The teachable moment, the third one, is about courage. It's one thing to accept this intellectually. Have you ever been to one of those skyscrapers in the States where it has a glass floor right at the top? And you get to stand, you get to walk out on the glass floor and look down a very, very long way. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing entirely to have the courage to put it into practice. 
Never underestimate Peter's courage. It's one thing to know that it's okay. It's another thing to step out and do it. But then he loses his nerve. Remember, it's a moving seascape. Both the wind and the waves have been buffeting the boat. So the relative heights of everything in the story are shifting all the time with the wind and the waves. We're told literally that it is seeing the wind in verse 30 that causes him to lose his nerve. Maybe it's an extremely strong gust hits him and jolts him into remembering what he's doing, distracts him from concentrating on Jesus. Maybe a wave sweeps past and hides Jesus from him for a moment, and he feels suddenly, suddenly, that he's standing on the water alone. And then the boat is too far away and behind him, and he can't see Jesus. And then we're told, as faith starts to give way to fear, he starts to sink. He doesn't go in a moment, but he can feel his steps sinking into the water. And then he cries out, verse 30, Lord, save me. We're not sure how far Jesus is away, but he moves swiftly to grab Peter in verse 31 and bring him, please notice, not to the safety of the boat, but to the safety of standing once more on the water with Jesus. Always remember the way Peter jumps. He jumps towards Jesus, not back to the boat. It's safer, in Peter's mind, being on the water with Jesus than back in the boat. If we don't read Jesus' words in verse 31 right, they sound really harsh. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith is kind of a nickname. You little faith, why did you doubt? I think you need to imagine them spoken with a proud smile on his face. Because I think Jesus is amazed and delighted at what's just happened. And the point that Jesus is making is the right one. The time to doubt, Peter, was before you started walking on the water, not while you were already doing it. It was always impossible. So why doubt now when you're already doing it? And even if Jesus describes Peter affectionately as little faith, it's still much more than any of the others had dared to do. Peter had the courage to put into practice what he believed to be true and is consequently the only person apart from Jesus ever to walk upon the water. As they get back into the boat together, all falls upon all of them. Jesus, they know, is special. But Peter, well, many of them have known him for many years, and special was not the first word that usually sprang to mind when they were thinking about Peter. Yet faith in Jesus has just enabled their very ordinary friend, Peter, to walk on the water. So awe at what, who Jesus is and awe at what Jesus can do and awe at what Jesus can empower them to do fills everyone in the boat. Verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Awed at what courageous practice faith can do. So three teachable moments about awe, about empowerment, and about courage. So what does all this mean for us today?
I think first it challenges us to put Jesus in the right category ourselves. Remember your friend or your spouse saying or doing something that caused you to put them in a different category, to characterize their relationship with you differently. Remember me encountering God and never being able to put him back in the box again, having to accept him as sovereign with all that means for his right to direct my life. Putting Jesus in the right category led to Peter being empowered to do what he does here. In what category do you have Jesus? In, just shortly to come in the story of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? And they say various prophets. And he then says, who do you say I am? It comes after this event. What's Peter's response? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He learned that walking on the water. They learned that feeding the 5,000. In what category do we have Jesus? For some of us, perhaps he is saviour, but not Lord. For some of us, maybe he's a moral teacher, but he's not sovereign. For some of us, perhaps we prefer to know him from a distance rather than recognise him as the present one, the present one who enfolds us, comforts us and strengthens us today, the present one who convicts us, who calls us, who challenges us. You know, in, uh, often when you've, done, you've gone wrong in a computer programme and you come to select an option and it's greyed out because you've got something wrong somewhere, and you have to go back through various stages to work out what you got wrong. Who do you say he is? What are you ruling out? What are you saying that he cannot be to you? Who do you say he is? To what extent do you have Jesus in the right category? Where might you need to upgrade him? Where might you need to accept that he is utterly awesome? Where might you need to be as the disciples thinking, well, if you can make Peter do that, who I know an awful lot about, what might you want to do through me? What might you want to do in me? How might you want to transform me? And that sense again of awe, that Greek word which means to turn towards to kiss, not in a romantic sense, but in the sense of adoration and surrender. Where do we need to have a greater sense of awe before Jesus who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who the scriptures tell us is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the Lord of everything between. I think second, it invites us to dream. To dream about the requests that Jesus would love us to make. To dream about the requests that Jesus would love us to make. Please grasp who takes the initiative here. Peter asks Jesus to call him. Peter asks uh, Jesus to empower him to do something impossible because he can see Jesus doing it 
but he fully believes that Jesus can do that in him as well, in through him as well. The miracle happens at Peter's initiative, not that of Jesus. So the teachable moment isn't just about empowerment, though of course that's transformational. The teachable moment is about being allowed to ask, being allowed to ask, being encouraged to ask for everything that God has for us. There is no sense that this would have happened had Peter not dared to ask. And the sense that Jesus was pleased to be asked. There appears to be at least a permissive character, that something at least of what we receive is shaped and released by our daring to ask. So where do we need to be bolder in daring to ask, bolder in daring to dream for what God might want to do in and through us? What are the requests that Jesus would love us to make? When I was praying before the service, I just had a picture of a, of a dripping tap. And there's a sense that actually that what, we're, what we're receiving at the moment is just the drips from a tap that some folk would love to, some folk probably the enemy would love to keep, keep closed. Let's not assume that that's all that God has for us. There's a sense that actually I think we can ask the Lord to turn the tap to turn the tap and for the water to flow. You remember the picture of the river flowing from the temple that starts out as only ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's hip deep, and then it's chest deep, and then it's too deep uh, for anyone to cross, too deep and too swift flowing. I think we've got used almost to a poverty spirit that there's just a few drips from the tap and that's all that we're going to get. And yet here, hear the permissive character and dare to dream. Dare to dream that we are talking to the Father, that we are talking to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Dare to dream that we can do, we can ask as Peter asks and hear the same response, come. He could see it, therefore he could imagine it, therefore he could ask for it. It's a permissive character that something at the very least of what we receive is shaped and released by our daring to ask. By our daring to ask because we know the Lord loves to be asked and because the Lord doesn't want us to get by on a few drips from the tap but wants to open the tap wants to open the tap and transform things. I think third, it challenges to ask for the courage that faith requires. For the courage that faith requires. What seems to transform here is the courage Peter shows. The courage Peter shows to put his faith into practice, to step out literally and figuratively into an unknown world and to put his faith in Jesus into practice, to step out and down, to step out and down even though that was breaking every instinct formed by hours on this water, to step out and down into a different world. Faith in the sense of courageous practice faith. Faith is much more opposed to fear than doubt. 
Fear that we've heard God at all. Fear that God will come through for us. Fear that God will make a way for us. Fear that our mistakes and our weaknesses will disqualify us. Fear that God will use us. He, won't, he will go much further than we want him to. But remember from Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those from Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that means that no one and nothing can separate you from that love and that no one and nothing has any right to speak against you and that no one and nothing can challenge your right to step out in faith, as did Peter here. And as I did all of those years ago without no idea with not a clue what God was going to do, not a clue how God was going to use me, not a clue where God was going to send me. Very often our challenge is not so much faith, but putting our faith into practice, to step out, to step out and down, to step out and trust that Jesus will catch us, even if we start to sink. Let's pray for the courage to become like Peter. Let's pray for the courage to practice our faith. Let's pray for the courage to turn the tap, to ask the Lord to send us everything that he has for us. Everything that he has for us, whatever it means. Whatever it means. Have we got the courage to say, yes, Lord, and not yes with a little asterisk next to it, which says terms and conditions apply. Have we got the courage to say that? I did have that courage uh, as a young person. I had no idea what I was saying yes to, but I had the courage to say yes. Have we got the courage to step into everything that the Lord has for us? Whether that's as a church, whether that's for you as individuals, you as couples, as families, have we the courage to say yes, a simple yes, and say, Lord, wherever, wherever you want to send me, I will go. However you want me to serve you, I'll get my hands dirty. Whenever you call me, I will go. Have we had the courage to say that, as Peter did? Very often our challenge is not so much faith, but daring to put our faith into practice, to step out, to step out and down, to step out and trust that Jesus will catch us even if we start to sink, to step out and know that Jesus will be with us. Let's pray for the courage to become like Peter. Pray for the courage to practice our faith. Pray for the courage to say, Lord, turn that tap. And whatever you do is okay with me. Wherever you send me, whatever it means, however my life has to change, yes. Because we can want renewal, we can want revival, but sometimes we won't will the means. Sometimes we won't be part of stepping out 
and stepping into all that God calls. If we want to see, if we want to see the church transformed and therefore the culture and the world around us transformed, then we have to have the boldness to say yes. Have to have the boldness to step out and say yes, whatever, whatever, I'm in. Have we got the courage to say that? Do we feel that stirring as I felt all of those years ago to say yes? Yes, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. Yes, Lord, I want your kingdom to flow through me. Yes, I want you to pour out your spirit and swirl me away to wherever, wherever you want. Thank you.